John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. John testifies again about Jesus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. And Bible reading 2, Philippians 3 verses 7 to 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey everyone, my name is Nick. If we're yet to meet, I'm one of the pastors here at church, and it is a joy to see you on this school holiday, public holiday, Daylight Savings, NRL Grand Final Sunday. You've made it. You're the faithful remnant. We happen to be in between series, and our team said, Nick, you can preach on whatever you want. And so I said, John 3.30. John 3.30. He must become greater. I must become less. I said to Beck today, I want that on my tombstone. If I can have one Bible verse etched on the place where I lay, I want it to be this. He must become greater, I must become less. If you ever see some tattoos on me, it's going to be these verses. Now, at first hearing, it doesn't sound particularly exciting. If anything, difficult and disappointing. Why would you want to prize verses where you intentionally fade off into the background, into obscurity? Disappear from anything that matters so that you can just be there. Why would you do that? It seems counterintuitive, and that's exactly right, because the more time you spend pursuing Jesus and understanding the way that he lays before us, you realize that he invites us into paradox. 
He invites us into a place that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world around us, but makes perfect sense as you get to know him. He invites us to lose our lives so that we can find our lives. He invites us to humble ourselves so that we can truly be exalted. He invites us to give up our whole world because in doing so, we will gain far more than we ever left behind. He invites us to really seriously to die, to die to ourselves because it's only as we put ourselves aside and pursue him that we can truly find life. Bonhoeffer said, when, a person, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Permit the gender, non-inclusive language, but it's true. We're called to give ourselves away. And that's not a morbid, difficult, depressing message. In fact, it's a message filled with hope. Jesus says, John 10.10, I have come so that they may have life and life to the full. Paul, in our reading before, he said, I consider everything, everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And John, as he hears the voice of Jesus, he says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. John 3.30, he must become greater, I must become less. The place of humility is the place of fullness. The place of humility is the place of fullness. The question that I think we need to wrestle with is how do we actually get to a place like John where we can say with full honesty that we desperately want Jesus to become greater, that we might become less? How do we find ourselves in a place of faithfulness to God that we don't necessarily wrestle so much with our pride in ourselves, but we can genuinely, truly want Jesus to shine that we might fade into the background? And as a good Anglican minister, I've got three points for you. All right, the first one is this. We wanna understand humility. So if you've got your Bibles open, John chapter three, you're gonna to wanna to follow along with us. We need to understand humility. At first, first mark, humility doesn't sound like an exciting thing. If anything, it seems like an invitation to boredom. My first understanding of humility was um, the picture of the year nine art class where the year nine girl says, oh man, I'm just no good at art. I'm just not very good at this. And then she holds up her masterpiece and everyone starts praising her because she's been humble about it, right? Like she's been self-deprecating, but in reality, she just wants everyone to praise her for how good she is, right? That's often our picture of humility. It's something either where we need to put ourselves in the corner so no one can see us, so that we can not get in anyone's way, so that we can be forgotten, or it's this self-deprecating, it's not real humility, but a desire to be receiving something from others. But that's not true humility. That's not biblical humility. It's completely different and it's life-giving. Have a look at John the Baptist. He gives us a picture of a wedding. Have a look with me at verse 29. He says this, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. John the Baptist is not a quiet, sit-in-the-corner kind of guy. He's described as living in the wilderness, dressed in camel's hair, and he eats locusts and honey, and it sounds like it's by choice, not because he's forced to. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. He's a dynamic preacher. 
His ministry is anointed. He's planted himself beside water in the middle of nowhere and people come to him from all around so that they can hear him preach. And it's told that he preaches a baptism of repentance and people are being dunked so that they might receive life in the name of God. It's this message that precludes the gospel as Jesus steps into the world. He's not sitting in the corner doing nothing. He's actively working and leading as God has called him to. The reason he can do that and still remain humble is because of this picture of a wedding. He's effectively saying, I'm the best man. I'm the best man. I'm standing here at the wedding. I'm not even sitting down in the seats. I'm standing up here right up the front beside the groom who's awaiting his bride. It's a place of prominence. It's a place of of importance. In those months leading up to the wedding, the groomsmen have a role to play. It's nowhere near as important as the bridesmaids. We all know that. The groomsmen just bring the food and kind of turn up to put things up for the reception. We get that. But they have a role nonetheless. They're standing here to support this person and to make this special moment in their life and mark it and be beside them and love them. And John is saying, that's what I do. I am the friend of the bridegroom whose role it is to stand beside the groom. That's the picture of humility. It's not intentionally finding ourselves in places so no one can see us. It's, it's being invited into a position that God has called us to and living it in a way that doesn't try to demand the attention for ourselves. It's, it's ridiculous if a best man was trying to get the attention at a wedding. You'd notice it right away. No, a good best man fades to the side, not out of the picture, but that the groom and the bride and the wedding might shine. Now, I've been to a few weddings as a groomsman and, or a best man, and it gets expensive when you've got to get three different shades of grey suits because it doesn't quite match the rest of the bridal party. If you're thinking of getting married, guys, just it's cool. Just grey's fine. It's not a problem. <laughs> you just, just wear it. But as you do it, you realise that it really is a beautiful moment in life. As you stand up the, up the top as, as a groomsman or a best man, you are given a front row seat to look at that first look on the groom's face as they glance at their bride down the aisle. And then you see the, the sheer surprise and wonder. You see their hands shaking. You're up so close. You see the sweat coming down their face. And then you get a front row view to the bride as she walks down. You know she's been getting prepared since 3 a.m. It's rude because the boys have just been playing touch footy down at the park, but it is how it is. And she's coming down and then you look at the groom and you see that he's just got tears coming down his face. He can't hold it in anymore. He can't believe this moment is here. I'm getting married. It's incredibly beautiful. It's an absolute privilege. And humility is learning to stand in the place that God invites us into, not seeking to bring anything to ourselves, but to to lavish our attention and ourselves upon what he's called us to. Problem. Most of us don't do that. We're not very good at being best men. What we do is we wait for the processional music to start. The church is beautiful. There's flowers up here. There's orders of service. It's wonderful. There's flower girl coming down. The processional starts. The groom starts to get his tears on. And we kick him out of the way. And we come and stand in his place and wait for the bride to come to us. Ridiculous, right? Could you imagine being a wedding where that happened? No one's going to let that fly. And yet that's the picture of what it means when we try and steal the glory from Jesus. Absolutely ridiculous, and yet we all do it. Absolutely unfathomable. Can you imagine the shame? And yet that's so many of our stories. We need to learn to divert all 
attention and glory to Jesus. That's the place of humility. Humility is not that self-deprecating, boring, joyless place. It's the place of a wedding standing before the groom. Humility is living life the way it was meant to be lived. You were made by God and you were made for God. And it's, it's actually what you were designed for, to, to usher all glory to Jesus. It's, humility is chasing after joy and purpose and fulfillment in a way that actually works. Everybody wants those things. Everybody wants joy. Everyone wants a life that matters. But when we put ourselves at the center, it's as silly as trying to kick the groom out of the way. No one's going to let it fly. You're left elusively chasing after something that just never quite captures. But when you do take the role that Christ has given you and stand beside him and, and offer him the glory, you find everything that you were looking for. Humility is being who you're meant to be with nothing to prove. I like how Tim Keller says it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'll say it again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. To find ourselves in the place with John the Baptist, to be able to say, he must become greater and I must become less. We need to understand humility but how did he do it? You might be thinking, like, yeah, I agree. Totally understand that. That's cool. And yet my life doesn't look like John the Baptist. Why can't I say these words and not really believe them? Well, John the Baptist is really helpful again because he understands with crystal clear clarity who he isn't and who he is. Who he isn't and who he is. He understands his identity and he understands his calling. First, who isn't John? John is not the Messiah. You know, shock. You know, if you and I were sitting around going, you know what, I think I might be Jesus, we'd all put you in an insane asylum. Actually, I heard at Macquarie Park Church, there's a guy coming along who is claiming to be the Messiah. And that requires a stern conversation, right? Because we all know that that's unlikely to be true given the biblical account. If that's you, we should have a conversation after this, and that's totally okay. But John is in a different position to you or I. John has a prestigious ministry. He has a platform. He has influence. He has all these things that are going for him. And when his disciples hear about the kind of stuff Jesus has got going on, they come up to him and they say, hey, bro, you heard about this Jesus dude? He's like, yeah, yeah. He's baptizing more people than you. Like, oh no, he didn't. You know, he's like, it's like West Side versus he's, he's he's on our side of the Jordan River. Like, this is not cool, man. We need to step up and kick him out. What does John say? Verse 27. Have a look at this. He says, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. In other words, this this place that you're describing for me of garnering more followers and building a bigger platform, that's not the God-appointed place. That's not who I am. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify already. I've said, I am not the Messiah. That's not me. John is crystal clear. That's not who I am. And we all can say those sorts of things. We can say, I'm not meant to be the groom at the center. I'm supposed to be the best man. But we don't believe it necessarily. John is, is so in, entrenched in his identity in who God has made him to be that the, the allure of fame and wealth and ministry are not enough to pull him away from who God has designed him to be. And that is who we must be. We must get crystal clear clarity that we are not the main game. 
It doesn't sound like a very inspirational message. It's not about you. (laughs) It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Your entire existence is about Jesus. All of creation, everything that's happened through all of history is designed to come and find its fulfillment and its unity in Christ, that we might spend all of eternity worshipping Him and praising Him for all that He's done. It's not about us. And it's when we can get our roots deep in that truth that we begin to realize he must become greater and I must become less. Does that make sense? We need to get crystal clear on who we aren't. But at the same time, we need to get clear on who we are because we can say, yes, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not, no, I'm not all these things. But Christ invites us in and he allows us to be a part of this, like that best man image. We're, we're given a position and a place. And so John gets that. He says, verse 28, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. I'm not that guy, but this is who I am. He knew his calling. He was the one sent before the Messiah to prepare the way. He knew that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. Centuries ago prophesied in Isaiah that there will be a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. He knew that is who I am. So I can resist your attempts to draw me into the place of self-worship because I know that I'm not that person but also because I know exactly who God has designed me to be and where I am called to be. I am called to be the voice that prepares the way for him. I don't need to go into the place that you're calling me to because I already am called somewhere. And so that's when he can say he must become greater and I must become less because that is his calling. His calling is to find himself in a position to make Jesus shine as he steps onto the, the world stage and begins his ministry and gives his life as a ransom for many. It's incredible. It's beautiful. And it's humility. Because from this point, we don't really see John again, except for in other Gospels where he's imprisoned and eventually beheaded. And so humility is not an invitation into worldly flourishing, but something greater and something deeper. John understood his identity. John understood his calling, and I can just imagine that moment when he first comes face to face with Jesus and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, because he knew what he was doing. He was making Jesus look great. My question for you, do you know your identity? To put it a bit crassly, do you know that it's not about you? (laughs) Do you really know that your life exists for Jesus? And to go a bit further, it's not just that you're unimportant compared to Jesus. The the beautiful irony of the gospel is that Jesus is the center of all things. He's the God who made you, and yet he's the one who dies for you. Your life is about him. You don't do a good job of it, so he gives his life for you. Isn't that incredible? Is that your identity? Made by God, redeemed by God, now giving everything back to God. We need to get crystal clear clarity on this. This needs to be the foundation of everything that we are. He's made each person in this room different, uniquely. You are all different. I totally get that. But at the heart of everything is that you are made by God, you are redeemed by God, and you exist for God. We need to get that crystal clear. My question then is, do you know your calling? You know who you aren't. You know that you're made by God and for God, but what are you here to do? How do you participate in this picture of he must become greater and I must become less? How does, how does this take shape in your specific life? 
Well, John, in one sense, has it a bit easy, right? He got a divine calling and a prophecy for centuries that revealed who he was going to be, and he stepped into it and he lived it. But remember, he got killed for it, okay? So before you glorify the picture of God telling you what to do, know that it doesn't always end in a place that you might want to be. But don't you feel me? Sometimes you just kind of sit back and you're like, God, why can't you just tell me? Like, why am I just wandering through life trying to work out who I am and what I'm here for and how I can be a part of the kingdom? Jesus, I love you, but I don't know what to do with that. How do, how do we go there? Before you glorify the position of John, remember the words of Jesus. He says, John is the greatest prophet that there has been, and yet he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. And as you receive the invitation of Jesus, can I tell you, you are a part of the kingdom of heaven. You are greater than John. Why? Because you stand in a place where you have seen Jesus crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven, at the right hand of the Father, ready to return and bring all things before him. Every person, knee bowed, ready to give an account to him. And we've seen the full picture. We know that he left and said, Go and make disciples of all nations. He hasn't left us with with cluelessness or confusion. Instead, he's given us clear instruction. You are the church. You will go in the power of the Spirit and in the authority of my name, and you will make disciples. And so we sit here, 2022, I think, and we sit here with a church with millions upon millions of people who call on the name of Jesus because we stand in a really beautiful, unique space. There's still some questions. How do I fit into this kingdom? How do I belong to this church? But you don't need a divine calling. You need to stop and see where Christ has called you and how he has loved you and what he is doing in this world. But as you do try to ask that question, because I think we should, what is my place in the kingdom? How do I fit? Where is God calling me? What am I here to do? I love you, Jesus, but I'm not sure what I'm doing. I've got two pieces of advice. Take it or leave it. Deployment and discernment. Deployment and discernment. Deployment. How has God strategically placed you in this world to serve the kingdom? How has God placed you, I mean you specifically, to take stock of yourself, your life, everything that you are? How has God taken you and placed you uniquely for the purposes of the kingdom? To break it down a little bit, think about your personality. How has God made you and wired you? Your gifting. How has God empowered you? What has he given you to give to others? Location, physical, where where has he placed you? In what sphere of the world are you here to serve him in? Vocation, what skills and opportunities are uniquely yours? I don't just mean your job, but like the, the things that God has gifted you in that. Relational, who are the people in your life that God has put you alongside? There may be friends, family, neighbors who don't know a single other Christian other than you, and that is not by accident. You have been placed uniquely to serve the Lord Jesus because he knows the, the hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. And by his goodness and by his providence, here we are. So sometimes we need to not stop and just go, God, give me a sign in the sky. What do I do? Instead, we just need to get down and read our Bibles. Start praying, loving people well, serving in church, turning up, going out and just being what God's already called us to be. I think sometimes when we get so fixated on like, God, needs, you need to give me this special spiritual call, it's really just Christianized pride. We're just putting a divine label on our desire to be the center, where God's given us plenty to work with. And so that's a journey. That's something we need to work out. And that's something that we do in community. That's the beauty of belonging to church. We're a single church, each different parts. And as we walk this journey together, let's, let's work out how is God deploying you for the kingdom's sake? Second thing, though, is discernment. 
because we do believe that God has filled us with his spirit. He continues to direct his mission and kingdom. If he wasn't, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about the millions of believers. We'd be talking about the great mess in history that the Christian church was. God is invested in the kingdom going forward. And he is invested in you individually. He's filled us with our spirit and he continues to lead us and guide us by his spirit. Often and most importantly through the word. But there are moments where he intervenes in really helpful and useful ways. I think of big ways like the Webster family who used to serve here as pastors. But on a mission Sunday where Dan was actually contributing, he's sitting in the pew feeling deeply convicted by the spirit that perhaps he needed to take his family and go and take part in global mission. And now they're serving in Namibia, doing incredible work for the Lord. That is a moment of the Spirit moving. I think of Sally, our link missionary here, who describes herself as not an evangelist and terrified, and yet by the leading of God decided to move to the Middle East by herself so she could share the gospel with Muslim women. That is, that is the leading of God. I think of the small ways of those people that continually challenge me as they get up in the morning and walk for their coffee and pray to God, please give me a conversation to share the gospel. And God shows them someone and you hear these stories. It's incredible. I think the direction of my ministry, which was shifted significantly because someone listened to the spirit when he said, go and talk to Nick. And because of that single moment, things shifted for me. We cannot discount the reality of God's presence with us and his guiding presence with us. It's filled in the scriptures, Acts 1 and 2, when Pentecost happens, it's the group of believers waiting on God in prayer that God intervenes. Acts 13, Barnabas and Paul and the church in Antioch are worshiping and they're praying. And that's the context where the Spirit says, we need got to work for you. Acts 16, the Spirit, it says the Spirit forbid Paul and company to go into Asia Minor. And so instead they went over to Philippi. And when you've got Lydia, this a wealthy woman dealing in purple cloth for all the elite, and she receives Christ and turns her life towards the kingdom. You've got 1 Timothy 4, where Timothy is encouraged by Paul that you received a spiritual gift by the laying on of hands, so don't neglect it. We have a powerful God, but we have a personal God who is interested in directing the affairs of his kingdom through us and in us. And so we do need to learn to discern him whether that's through providence and the things that he's weaving together, it's not always a sign in the sky or a spiritual moment, or it's the prompting of the Spirit. The key in all of those circumstances, though, is that it's always discerned in community and through Scripture. We never move past those things. They are the guiding principles. But we need to understand we've been given everything we need in Scripture, and yet we need to discern perhaps God is opening us to send us somewhere. I like to think of it like this. We need to live our lives with our hands open, everything we have laid in them. We can tend to clench our hands over them because we love the things God's given us. And sometimes he's just gonna rip them open and take those things away. But when we live our lives with our hands open, ready for God to take, give in any way that he chooses, open to what he might be doing, that is the place where we can step into what he might have for us. And we may find a space for us to live in a way that we might not otherwise have. He must become greater and we must become less. Now, I've got one more point for you, and it will be quick. Okay, don't freak out. It's okay. The last point is that we need to understand the supreme worth of Jesus. We need to understand the supreme worth of Jesus. Looking at John the Baptist, for me at least, is, is persuasive. It's inspiring. It's like, wow, look at this man who turned his whole life to the glory of Jesus. Wow, I want to be like that. 
So why does it seem so radical and so exceptional and unique? Why does it seem like there are so few people who live this? Well, I polled a few people this week what they thought. I got six things. One, I think sometimes we're living by the flesh and not by the spirit. We're doing what feels good now because it's tangible, whereas sometimes the things of God are distant and hard to grab a hold of. And there's this sense of instant gratification. We're dictated by the desires of our flesh rather than being people who walk by the Spirit of God. Second, I think sometimes we have a desire for security where, again, sometimes following Jesus requires a place of uncertainty, faith in something that is yet to be realized. But we don't like that. We like to have our hands on our future. We like to be able to touch exactly where we're going and know that nothing's going to fall apart, nothing's going to go wrong until it does go wrong. But we like to go hold on to it. We've got to forge our own security. And that keeps us from actually going all in for Jesus. Three, we've got to name it. Sometimes we just love the world. We don't want to give up what we're partaking in. We don't want to put aside a lifestyle that's not honoring to Jesus when in fact God is calling us to give that up. Four, pride. Sometimes we just want to be at the center. <laughs> and again, you've got to name it. Five, and I think this one might resonate with a few of you. Sometimes we have a fear that it's just all a lie. That maybe Jesus didn't really do what he said he did and promise what he promised. And what if I go all in and it doesn't work out? I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes those doubts are there. And lastly, we're quick to forget. Maybe you've been all in for Jesus before. Maybe you've tasted the goodness of God. Maybe you've experienced everything that we've talked about tonight. But over the years of your faith, you've settled back into a comfortable going through the motions. And instead of this sense of, I must make Jesus greater, it's, I have Jesus in my life and that's enough. So what do we do? Well, we need to come and see that Jesus is worth more than anything else we have in our life. Turn to our second reading, Philippians 3. Chapter 7 to 14, we need to understand that Jesus is greater than anything else. Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I don't know what I think about this, but there are scholars who debate that word garbage and whether or not he's using a swear word to say this is real, absolute crap. Right? He's saying everything you have in this world is nothing if you have Jesus. It's the parable that Jesus says. It's the man who sees this treasure in a field and he goes and sells everything he has because he knows if I can have that treasure, I have more than I left behind. Do you believe that, that Jesus is worth more than anything in your life? Because if you do see that and you do believe that, it's a call to surrender it all over to him. It's that picture of your hands. You could have the world in your hands, but if you're willing to surrender it over to Jesus, that's where you can find yourself in this place of Paul. I consider everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But I do think the hardest part is the long haul marathon that is the Christian life. You can have a moment of God convicting you. You can have a moment of, of turning your life around, but what are you going to do for the 60, 70, 80 years you have of trying to follow Jesus? Well, I find Paul very encouraging. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 14, I press on 
toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love that. Christ Jesus has already taken hold of him. His eternity is secure in his union with Christ. And yet there's this real dynamic. I need to press on. I need to take hold of him. And so my word to you, especially looking at you younger Christians, press on. Don't stop. Don't settle for the the chips and the coins that this world will offer you when Jesus is offering you treasure beyond all comparison. Give your whole life to Him and press on with every season, the good and the bad, the easy and the hard. He's worth it. Press on, take hold of Jesus. And if the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote more than two thirds of your New Testament needs to keep pressing on, you and I do too. Take heart. It's not about perfection. It's about resting in Christ and taking hold of Him. It's when we give ourselves over to the pursuit of Jesus and put aside ourselves that we can find ourselves in this place where he must become greater and I must become less. So if I can get to the end of my life, someone can stick that on my tombstone and it's not a complete lie, I'll have lived okay. Let me pray. God Almighty, it's incredible that you would look upon us in our imperfection, in our flaws, and in our sin, and choose to love us with the love of Jesus. It's really, it's unfathomable, but you are a God of the impossible. You are a God who is love. We're so thankful to you that we can rest in him and know our eternity is secure. Father, please, would you do the work that we need you to do within us to see Jesus as our greatest treasure, to to turn our lives to serving him and him alone. Would you help us to to stand with John the Baptist and say he must become greater and we must become less. And as we take hold of you, God, would you do mighty works to bring others into salvation and would you gain more and more and more glory. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake.